didn't stop playing the music, I would just be out here bouncing around for the rest of the afternoon. And you, and you might be right, but at some point we got to get to the time of preaching. <laughs> it's good to see everybody. Man, if you didn't get a study sheet, would you raise your hand? Is there anybody that didn't get one? We do have a, we do have a few over here. Where, do, we have it, do we have some more? It looks, I think Will has a couple over there, it sounds like. Oh, Kelsey has them. Okay, cool. Well, man, I'm glad a lot of you guys were able to make it out to the discipleship conference last week. We had such a good time, man. What a, what a, what a great time to just kind of refocus on the mission, refocus on the, on the most important things that we're here left on this planet to do. And if you were there Sunday night, you know, you know that our band did us proud and they rocked out again, just like they did the year before. And everybody was talking about how great it was. So it was a it, it was a it was a really good time, so I'm glad so many of y'all were able to to make it to that. Let's let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we love you. I pray God that you would just uh, I pray you would just move in this place this morning. I pray you'd help me to get out of the way so that your word can have free course and be glorified. I pray God you'd give us just clarity of thoughts and soft hearts, and that you would just change lives and save lives this morning. And we love you, and your name we pray, amen. All right, well, I'm excited to dive back into our verse-by-verse study this morning of the book of 1 Thessalonians. At the end of chapter 4, Paul was detailing for us what we call the day of Christ. The day of Christ is, is we typically refer to that day as the rapture. And it's a day where the believers that are alive on this planet at that time will catapult off of this planet and meet Jesus in the sky. And and as chapter 5 begins, Paul transitions from talking about the day of Christ, and he transitions to talking about the day of the Lord. And so we've been studying that over over the past couple weeks, and we've seen that the day of the Lord is specifically the second coming, which is, which is that time, of course, when Jesus comes back and touches down on earth after this seven-year tribulation period. And, and, but, but though that is specifically the day of the Lord, when we look at it all throughout the Bible, we do see that it's broader than just that. And, and that the day of the Lord includes everything after the rapture, so it includes the, the tribulation period, the millennium, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And and, and last week we began looking at what we need to know about the day of the Lord. Your first first point and your first sub-point there is actually review. We're continuing that on from from last week. We we began looking at what we need to know about the day of the Lord, and and we're going to continue studying that this morning, last week we saw that the day of the Lord is described in 1 Thessalonians 5 as a time that comes as a thief in the night. It, it comes, letter A, as a thief in the night. And, and, and we spent a decent bit of time looking at that. I, I won't attempt to even try to recreate it this morning, but I encourage you to go back and listen to it to get caught up if you weren't able to make it last week. But now to begin, I I want us to look at the next thing that we need to know about the day of the Lord that God describes for us. And and, and it's that letter B, it's that it comes 
when they say peace and safety. It comes when they say peace and safety. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 3 says. It says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. The, the, day, of the, the day of the Lord comes when they shall say peace and safety. Now, now one thing I want to point out to us from verse 3 is that in this verse, we see the words they, them, and they. Do you see that in verse 3? It, and those are used in contrast to the words in the following verses, which are ye, you, ye, and then, and then we. And, and so the reason that Paul does that is because this book is written to the church. And the church will already be raptured off of this planet when the events that happen and that are described in verse 3 happen. Are you tracking with that? And so those events are already those events are going to happen once we are gone and so that's why Paul uses the words they and them talking about those that will be left behind at the rapture as opposed to using in verse 3 ye you and we like he does in the following verses when he's talking about things that specifically relate to the church. So when they those that are left behind at the rapture that will subsequently be in the tribulation period, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Now, let's just take a second to, to think about what, this, what, about what this tribulation period is actually going to be like. Have you ever taken just a second to, to process that? We like playing those games with with a lot of other things, right? We like playing those games with, what would I do if I hit the lottery? What would I do with all that money? Right? Have you ever played the game of what, on, what in the world is it going to look like on this planet when we're raptured out of here and the tribulation period is ushered in? It, we, what is life going to look like after we're gone? And, and I want us to think about the fallout from that. And what the rest of the world is going to be experiencing and what the rest of the world is going to be thinking. Because what we know is, is that there's going to be an extremely large number of people that disappear off of this planet at one time. The, the statistics say that there are over 2 billion people in the world that claim to be Christians. There are around 8 billion people in the world total. If all 2 billion people that identify as Christians truly were Christians, that would be 25% of the world disappearing with no explanation. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's highly unlikely that all 2 billion people that claim to be Christians have truly been saved. So for the fun of it, let's just say it's not 2 billion. Let's say it's 500 million. Is that, that fair? Let's go, let's go with that. It, 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 it's hard to estimate, but that seems reasonable. So to put that in perspective, 
There are 330 million people that live in the United States of America right now. There are 143 million people that live in Russia. So if 500 million Christians disappear off this planet at the rapture, that would be more people than the population of the United States and Russia combined disappearing off of the planet. It would be like you snapped your fingers and no one's left in either of those countries. I mean, can you imagine what would happen? Now, do you think that that has the chance to maybe get people just a little bit freaked out based upon our response to the COVID-19 virus? Do you, do, you, do you think that we might just freak out just a little bit? I, I mean, I, can you even begin to imagine? I mean, that many people that you didn't know disappearing would be bad enough. But understand, many people will be losing loved ones not understanding what happened to them. Right. You, you'd be freaked out enough at the disappearance of 500 million strangers but it's at another level when some of them are people that you know and love. Sure. It's moms, it's dads, it's grandparents, it's aunts, it's uncles, it's kids. What about the babies? Yeah. Babies haven't reached an age of accountability, so I, I believe they'll be raptured out of here. And so those left behind are going to be grieving through and processing that. Those babies weren't even included in the statistics that I threw out. To you. So the number that would be raptured out of here, it's just, it's going to be nuts. Hey, have you noticed all this crazy interest lately in aliens? I mean, we've always been interested, but wow, we're like at a fever pitch right now. You want to make some money, just do you a little aliens Netflix documentary and the masses will pounce, right? We'll all converge at one time. Man, that seems like one of the few ways that you could explain what's going to happen at the rapture. The, there, there may be some others, but that's as plausible of one as I can think of that eliminates God from the equation. And, and, and then in addition to that, there's gonna be, there are believers that are pilots, aren't there? What happens to those planes? What happens to those helicopters? There will be believers driving. What happens to those cars? or the people driving buses. There will be surgeons and doctors disappearing in the middle of surgeries and procedures. And at every turn, there's going to be chaos and catastrophe all over this planet, and everybody's going to be losing their marbles. And, and there's going to be panic, and there's going to be confusion, and there's going to be uncertainty. There will surely be some sort of economic fallout. And in the midst of all the chaos, and all the desperation, and all the uncertainty, just like in the movies, here comes a dude rolling in on a white horse. But the first guy that rolls in the white horse isn't the guy you want to be on the white horse. It's the, other, the next guy you want, not, the, not that one. Because the first guy is the Antichrist. You see, those on the planet won't recognize it at first, but they will be witnessing the rise of the Antichrist. That's, that's number one in your study sheet, the rise of the Antichrist. But, but Revelation 6, it literally describes him as coming in, riding on a white horse. Re Revelation 6 is, is showing us what happens on the earth at, 
after the rapture. That's what Revelation 6 has shown us. This is what happens on earth after the rapture. And from Revelation 6 2, we can see, though it is a big topic of debate, we can see that the one riding in on the white horse here is the Antichrist. Look at Revelation 6 2. It says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. This verse is is describing the Antichrist who's coming and he's bringing peace in the midst of all of this chaos. Now, we typically relate this idea of conquering to, to violence, but it doesesn't necessitate violence. It really just means that you overcome or you, you get the victory. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that you got it by violence. And you say, but in this verse it says he has a bow. And that's right, but what, what doesn't he have? He's, he's missing something that usually goes along with that, with that bow. He's got a bow with no arrows, and that's because the Antichrist is coming and he's conquering but he's not conquering with violence. He's conquering how Daniel 11.21 says and prophesied that the Antichrist will. It says that he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Do you see that? You see, he'll obtain the kingdom and he'll conquer not by violence and not by force, but by flatteries at first. He's a smooth talker. What would Sade say? He's a, he's a smooth operator, she said. And according to 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the, the Antichrist is going to show up, and he's going to put on a show. He's going to say all the right things at the right times, and he's going to put on this unbelievable exhibition of satanic power. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. The miracles that the world is going to see this guy do will be more than enough for the people of the world to say, now this is the guy we need to be following. He's going to promise Israel a seven-year peace treaty to allow them to restore worship in the temple and, and allow them to sacrifice And it's going to be very deceiving to everyone because just like 2 Corinthians 11, 14 says, Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I mean, can you imagine how good all of this is going to seem? You can imagine how low everybody's going to feel after going through all the turmoil, financial hardships, loss of loved ones, uncertainty about What happened? Uncertainty and fear about the future moving forward. And then the hero shows up. And he's going to offer a solution to all of the world's problems. And he's coming in the name of peace. According to Revelation 13.4, the people are going to say, there ain't nobody got it like this guy got it. This this guy is the man. And they're going to essentially say, who would dare come against him? It's going to be very deceiving to those that are still on this planet. You see, Satan has always sought to deceive 
And the way he does it is by imitation. He does it by imitation, the imitation of the Antichrist. That's what he does. You, you may recall in, in Isaiah 14, 14, it's where we learn about the fall of Satan. It's where we learn about the fall of Lucifer. And he fell because he said in his heart, I will be like the Most High. And from then on, that's exactly what he attempts to do. He counters God and he counterfeits everything that he does, and he does it by imitating him. He attempts to deceive through counterfeiting. He wants to be like God, so he imitates him in hopes of deceiving. It's the same thing that goes on with counterfeit money. The reason counterfeit money works is because it looks so much like the real thing. That's why it works. That's what Satan wanted from the beginning. He said, I want to be like the real thing. But he's a counterfeit. And that's why you've heard us say so many times, Satan is hiding in religion. If we say something negative about somebody else's beliefs or another religious system, it isn't because we just get jollies on ripping people. It's because we understand the fact that Satan is hiding there. And we feel inclined in, in the passion and the responsibility to make sure you know that. He wants to be like the Most High, so he gets his own religion that goes under a variety of different names. And I'm not even talking about the Church of Satan. We get all bent out of shape about the Church of Satan. Can you believe what they're doing? They're just right in our face with all that stuff nowadays. But at least we know what they're about. We need to be more worried uh, about the, the churches of Satan that go under the name of Christian that look so close to the real thing but are sending people to hell unknowingly. But because he wants to be like God, he imitates what God does. He, so he hides in religion. And I, I say that to remind you of the way Satan operates. And I want to show you how far Satan runs with this whole thing of imitating God. So... So sometimes we'll say that our God is a, he's a triune God, right? God is, he, he's, sometimes we use the word, the, the Trinity. God is three in one is what that means. God is manifest in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so if you know that and your desire is, is like Lucifer, is to be like the Most High, then you have to manifest yourself in three persons, don't you? And so what do you think Satan does? He manifests himself in three persons. Just like there's a holy trinity, there's a satanic trinity, and it's made up of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Satan seeks to manifest himself in these three persons, and each of these three persons are a counterfeit to the, to the Godhead. They're a counterfeit to uh, their, their counterfeit to the Holy Trinity. And so, if, for example, the, the first person of the Satanic Trinity is the dragon, and he's the counterfeit of God the Father. In Revelation 12, 9, it, it says, the great dragon was cast out. Who's the dragon? That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. 
Yes, it's the same guy we already met in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis. That old serpent called the devil and Satan is the great dragon that deceiveth the whole world. And and, and what's interesting and what we need to understand is, is that the dynamic that exists between the dragon's relationship to the beast, the second member of the satanic trinity, that, that this relationship between the dragon and the beast is the same relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. It, just like John 6, 57 says, God the Father sent his Son into the world, the dragon will send his Son into the world. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 says. It calls the dragon's son the son of perdition. He's got a son too. Just as Matthew 28, 18 teaches us that God the Father has given all authority to his son, Jesus Christ. In that same way, the dragon will give his power and authority to the beast, his son. The last part of of Revelation 13, 2 says, the dragon gave him his power and his seat in great authority. So the first person of the satanic trinity is the counterfeit of God the Father, the the anti-God, we could say, which is Satan himself, the dragon. The second person of the satanic trinity is the beast. And, And again, the beast is the counterfeit of the Son. The beast is the Antichrist. He's the counterfeit of Jesus Christ, the Son. And just like Hebrews 1.3 says that, that Jesus is the likeness of God as Father, it says Jesus is the, is the brightness of His Father's glory and the express image or the exact copy of God the Father. In the same way, the second person of the Satanic Trinity, the beast, will be the exact likeness of the dragon. Revelation 12.3 describes the dragon like this. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Verse, uh, chapter 13 and verse 1, the beast is described the same way as the dragon. They, they're described the exact same way. And so in Revelation 13.1, it says the beast will rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. So the beast is in the likeness of the dragon, just like Jesus is in the likeness of God the Father. And just like the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, according to Colossians 1.18. And the church is, of course, the bride of Christ. And like Revelation 21.9 and other places show us, the second person of the satanic trinity also has a church. The counterfeit church. It's the, it's the harlot of Revelation 17.3. This is what John says in Revelation 17.3. It says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. 
And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This woman is a counterfeit church. This woman is a false religious system. And all through the Bible, you see the way the Antichrist is counterfeiting Jesus. And you see the way that God inspired the Bible to be written in such a way that all of this imitation sticks out when you study it out. Check these comparisons out between Jesus and the Antichrist. In the first part of John 5, in verse 43, it says that Jesus came in his Father's name and the world rejected him. The second part of the verse refers to the Antichrist and it says he's going to come in his own name and the world will receive him. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, it says that, that Christ came down from heaven. Revelation eleven seven says that the Antichrist will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Philippians 2, 8, it says that Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says that the Antichrist will exalt himself and demand that he be worshipped. John 14.6 says that Christ is the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 says the Antichrist is a lie. Mark chapter 1 and verse 24 says Christ is the Holy One. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that the Antichrist is the wicked one. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says that Christ is the mystery of godliness, which is, is God manifested in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of godliness. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7 says that the Antichrist will be the mystery of iniquity, which is Satan manifested in the flesh as the Antichrist. John 6, 38, it says that Christ came into the world to do the will of God or the will of him that sent me. Daniel eleven thirty six says the Antichrist will do according to his own will. Isaiah 53, 3 says that Christ will be despised and rejected of men. Revelation 13, 14, and 5 says the Antichrist will be admired and they will make an image in his honor. Christ obeyed God the Father in all things, and he finished the work the Father gave him to do. And Philippians 2.9 says that God has now exalted him and given him a name above every name. Isaiah 14, 14 says the Antichrist will exalt himself, but he will be cast down to hell. John 3.16, it says that all that come to Christ will receive everlasting life and never perish. Matthew 25.41 says the Antichrist will lead his followers into destruction and everlasting damnation. And it's like we could go on forever with these things. And some of y'all think I just did. <laughs> but I show you that. <coughs> Excuse me, I show you that. So it will be clear to you that Satan is the counterfeit 
And what's been happening through the years is Satan has been building up to the tribulation period where he will just totally blaspheme the name of God. And as Satan does this, as the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to set up his kingdom by counterfeiting the Trinity. And, and in Revelation 13, 18, it says that the, that the number of the beast or the number of the Antichrist is the number of man. Have you ever seen that? What's the number of man? What day was man created? Day six. It was the sixth day. And it says his number is 666. And the reason is because of the counterfeit trinity. There are three sixes because when he comes to set up his kingdom, he'll be manifested in, in three persons. And that's exactly what we've been looking at. The first person at the, of the trinity is the dragon, which is the anti-god or the anti-father. The, the second person is the beast, which is the anti-son, better known as the anti-Christ. But there's a third person of the satanic trinity. And, and he's known as the false prophet. We, we see all three members of the satanic trinity referenced in Revelation 16, 13. It talks about the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And, and we discover what his role is in Revelation 13, 12. Check it out in Revelation 13, 12. He, he's the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. Because what he's doing in Revelation 13, 12 is he's causing those that dwell on the earth to worship the first beast or to glorify the Antichrist. That's what he's doing. And that's the same exact role that the Holy Spirit has in the Holy Trinity, which is to bring glory to the Son. John 16, 14 says when talking about the Holy Spirit that he shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit is, is working to bring glory to Christ the Son just as the false prophet is working to bring glory to the Antichrist, the beast. And through the satanic trinity, Satan is countering, he's counterfeiting, he's, he's imitating everything God is doing even down to the roles that each member of the satanic trinity will have lining up with the roles of the holy trinity. So the Antichrist, he's going to come on the scene imitating Jesus Christ, and he's coming in the name of peace. He's going to come out, the Antichrist is going to come out, and he is going to put on the greatest exhibition of power that the world has seen since Jesus was here. Everything is going to be wonderful in the first part of his reign when the Antichrist comes into power. He's going to pull the world together in every way. He's going to pull us together economically and religiously. He's going to pull us together politically. He's going to perform unbelievable miracles. And after the insane fallout that happens from the rapture, the Antichrist is going to be the hero that picks up the pieces for all of the world to see. He's bringing peace. And just like you guys know, the Jews believe they're still looking for the Messiah. They think they're still looking for him, and I haven't had the privilege of going to, to Israel yet, but you know how they think they're going to recognize their Messiah when you ask them when you're there? We'll recognize him because he brings peace. That's how we'll know it's him. He brings peace. 
Well, if that's what they think, take peace and combine it with the miracles, and you've got yourself someone that looks a whole lot like the Messiah. But just when it looks like this world has finally arrived at, at peace and harmony, and they're all out there living the dream, isn't this great? Things are going to take a real big turn for the worse. Letter C, it comes with sudden destruction. It comes with sudden destruction. The day of the Lord comes with sudden destruction. It says, for when they shall say peace and safety, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. So when everyone's saying peace and safety after the Antichrist shows up, man, things are going to take a major turn. And, and here's what's going to happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 tells us, in, in verse 3, Paul has just referenced the son of perdition or the Antichrist. And then in verse 4, he describes something that's also referred to as the abomination of desolation. Talking about the Antichrist, verse 4, he says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Satan, in the person of the Antichrist, waltzes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he presents himself as God and demands that people worship him. This is the abomination of desolation. And that's, listen, that's been his desire from the beginning. He wanted to be like the Most High. This is just like Daniel 9 prophesied. And now, now remember, like we talked about earlier, the Antichrist is he's going to make this peace treaty or this covenant with the nation of Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. And, and in Daniel 9, 27, that's what he's talking about in the first part of the verse. Check it out. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. We understand from the context that that, that, that week is, a, is in reference to a week of years or a, or a period of seven years, the tribulation period. And in the midst of that week, three and a half years or 42 months, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So the end of the verse is telling us that he's, he's going to break the covenant that he has made with the nation of Israel. And then Daniel 12.11 gives us more detail. In Daniel 12.11 it says, And from that time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Okay, so the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel, and he shows himself as God in the temple, which is the abomination of desolation. And from that moment, there will be 1,290 days or, or three and a half years left. Now go back to Revelation 6 with me. Revelation chapter 6, and I'm really trying not to cough in this microphone, and it's really a struggle. Corey said that sometimes when he gets sick, the cough will leave him for the sermon. And I don't think God loves me that much because it is like right there and I'm like trying not to hack in your ear. Mm -hmm. All right, we saw earlier in this chapter, Revelation 6, the Antichrist 
he's riding in on the white horse, right? He's got, he's got the bow, and this is this time of peace. But when the Antichrist, when he comes into the temple and breaks the covenant with the Jews, and he, he demands to be worshipped, the next seal is open. Okay, the white horse came in after the opening of the first seal, and this is what happens after the opening of the second seal, verse 4 says. And there went out another horse that was red. Again, the last one was white. This one is red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So do you, think, do you see how quickly things have turned from the peace and safety that we just saw? The peace has been taken from the earth and has been replaced by violence. That's why Paul says in the verse we're studying this morning in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, that when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. And, and it keeps going after this red horse because the black horse shows up and it brings famine. And then comes the pale horse with death and hell. So after the Antichrist comes to Jerusalem and sits down as God in the temple, literally all hell breaks loose on this planet. This is what it says in Matthew 24 when Jesus gives instructions to the Jews as to what to do during the Great Tribulation. Have you ever seen this before? Straight from Jesus' mouth. The Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years of the Tribulation after the abomination of desolation when everything hits the fan. And, and here's what Jesus tells the Jews to do. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Stand in, the holy, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. In other words, you better not miss this one, buddy. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall the great tribulation, such as not was since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Do you see how fast Jesus tells them to get moving after the abomination of desolation, after the Antichrist comes and sits in the temple showing himself as God? Jesus is saying, you better get going, guys, and you better get going fast, man. You don't even have time to grab things out of your house if you're at the house. Like, that's getting, that's getting going. Like, don't grab anything. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 3 says, letter D, it comes as travail upon a woman with child. That's how it comes. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. <coughs> Excuse me. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. And if you've experienced the way that travail comes upon a woman with child, then you understand the urgency that we're talking about here. I literally just experienced this. And by and maybe I should say I literally just witnessed this. All the ladies are going, you experienced it? You ain't seen nothing. Yeah, I, no, I, I get it. I get it. I, I experienced nothing. I watched and cheered her on as she 
did what only she can do. Um, but I literally just experienced that. God blessed us with our you know, fourth child. I guess it's been a month ago. And so this isn't our, our first rodeo. But, you know, those contractions start hitting, and mama knows it's go time. There's no, no more time to play around. I'm trying to, like, rush around and get a shower and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, no, you need to get your rear end in the car, and we need to get going. There's no time for any of that. So we, we hop in the car, and we start heading down the road. We were wanting to deliver at a birth center, and there were some complications that didn't allow us to deliver where we wanted to deliver and so we end up at, across the street at the at the hospital and they're kind of taking their sweet time with everything and like I walk in and I'm like everything is just so chill and laid back and we're just asking questions you know yeah uh Morgan you know there how many weeks are you uh, uh I, does it matter she's coming um, <laughs> like, like, uh, have you had any complications thus far? Not other than you. <laughs> have you know? And then you you start you start you're sitting there and you're like, dude, it's go time. We don't have time for all this. Just a few just a few more questions. So if you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> you know, and they're they're asking us stuff like I'm kidding about that, obviously, but they're asking us stuff like this, right? And we're like, this baby's coming. We're trying to tell you, like, this baby's coming. And they're like, well, we don't want to have her on this room, and we don't want to have her on this bed, if we can help it anyway. And Morgan's like, the baby's not taking no for an answer. Like, <laughs> like she's, she's coming. So the next thing you know, we're rolling around in this bed. Morgan's getting rolled on this bed. There's like 12 nurses that come piling out there to get her into another room and onto another bed. You know, we've got this classic moment of one of the guys in there. He's like, all right, everybody, calm down. You know, and in, and in, the, in the heat of the moment, I was kind of freaked out. In hindsight, it was hilarious. But in the moment, I'm like kind of nervous, right? It's, a pretty, it's pretty intense. And so anyway, you know, she ends up switching beds, and all, it, all, it all works out in the end. But the point is, is that when this sudden destruction begins after the abomination of desolation, there's no time to be dilly-dallying around. There is no time to waste because the great tribulation of the day of the Lord is going to hit like a woman in travail. And then, letter E, it comes and they shall not escape. It comes and they shall not escape. In, in Revelation 16, verses 2 through 21, John is talking about these, these seven vials of the wrath of God's judgment that are going to be poured out on the earth at this time. Verse 2 says, Grievous sores will come upon those that took the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Verse 4 says that rivers and fountains turned to blood. Verses 8 and 9 they say, I think it's the next slide, verses 8 and 9, it says that, that the sun is going to move so close to the earth that men will be scorched with great heat. In verse 10, it, it says that, that it's going to go to total darkness and men will gnaw their tongues because of the pain. Verse 12 says the great river Euphrates will be dried up. 
verses 13 through 16 says that the evil spirits will be turned loose to gather the kings and the rulers of the earth to fight against God in the battle of Armageddon. And then verses 17 through 18, it says that God's going to let loose with earthquakes and he's going to let loose with lightning. And this chapter goes on to say the mountains are going to crumble. There's going to be hailstones about the weight of a talent, which is over 100 pounds. Can you imagine a hailstone coming down that size? About a pound or two will knock you senseless. Over a hundred will do some real damage. And over and over again, John says in Revelation, this is nothing like the world has ever seen. When this goes down, there's nothing like it before it, and there'll never be anything like it after it. That's why Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, it says the same thing. It says that there's no day like the day of the Lord. And in this verse, it's even called the, the, the time of Jacob's trouble. Of course, that is certainly pointing us to the Jewish nature of this day as the church will already be gone. It's why Joel chapter 1 and verse 15 calls the day of the Lord a day of destruction. In Psalm 110.5, the psalmist describes the day of the Lord as the day of God's wrath. And that wrath is going to hit and they're not going to escape. And, and, and knowing these things about the the righteous judgment that will come on those that reject the free gift of salvation that Jesus has graciously offered and is still graciously offering this morning. If you've never called on his name to save you, what is it that's holding you back from calling on his name? What else does he need to do? He's already done everything. We've looked a lot at God's wrath this morning, but this wrath is the product of a world of the sin of a world that has rejected his son, a world of people that God has been so long suffering with for all this time, a world of people that God loves so much that he died for them to make a path back to him, a world of people that God doesn't want to see perish, but that all would come to repentance And if you're in this room, you are a person that God has allowed to hear the truth of his word. And he's presenting some of you with yet another opportunity to repent and believe before the day of the Lord comes upon you like a thief in the night. Do you have ears to hear that this morning? And for those that do believe, there's something that I want us to be reminded of this morning. Because as we've been studying the the day of the Lord and this this time of of judgment that they will not escape, I can't help but be reminded of of a specific biblical principle. And that principle is the principle of reaping and sowing. What we've been studying this morning is that there will be a time when people say peace and safety, but what follows is sudden destruction that comes like a woman in travail and they will not escape. Romans 2, 5 says, But after the, thy hardness and impenitent or unrepentant or having no remorse heart, treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Listen, do you see what this verse is saying? It, this verse is saying the day of wrath or the, the day of the Lord and God unleashing his judgment 
at that time is happening as a result of those with hard hearts and those with unrepentant hearts who reject Christ and live how they want to live. This verse says those with hard, unrepentant hearts are treasuring up or they're storing up wrath against themselves, is what it says. And there's coming a day when God's wrath is going to be unleashed, and that's what we've been talking about this morning. And you see, it's, it's very similar to this thing of reaping and sowing. The, the principle of reaping and sowing, it's very similar to that because Galatians 6, 7, it says this, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And do you know why God has to tell us that? You know why God has to tell us that eventually our actions will cause us to reap something or harvest something? Because we can be out there sowing to the flesh, and we can be out there involving ourselves in sinful behaviors. We can have sinful attitudes and sinful and, and lustful thoughts and looks and sexual sins and having hate in our hearts and not treating each other with love and not forgiving one another. And we do whatever it is we're doing. And we, and we look around and we're like, wow, nothing happened. Nothing happened yet. I, I think I got away with it and I won't have any consequences for doing all this nonsense that I'm doing. Psalm 10, 11 says that there are those that say in their heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. But the thing is, is just like when a farmer sows seed, when we sow seed, there's time that goes by between sowing the seed and reaping the harvest. And you know what that sounds a whole lot like? When they shall say peace and safety, that's what we tend to think after sowing to our flesh. And that's what Satan would love for us to think. He'd love for us to think just like those in the tribulation period. Ah, peace and safety. Whew, I'm at peace. Nothing's going to happen to me. But just like in the tribulation, when they say peace and safety, what isn't too far away? Sudden destruction. And that sudden destruction is reaping what we've sown. It's reaping what they've sown for rejecting Jesus Christ, and now wrath is stored against them. And that's how reaping and sowing works for us, too. Even believers, just when you think peace and safety and that you've gotten away with it, sudden destruction hits and you end up paying the consequences for your actions. And just like in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, it says, and they shall not escape. We also will not escape the consequences of sowing to our flesh. Like Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked on this thing. You're going to reap what you sow, and that's what's ultimately happening during the day of the Lord. Amen. And, and though if you're a believer, that, that won't happen to you in the day of the Lord because you won't be here for it. That's what will happen to us, though, in a different way. Sure, we won't be on the planet when God's unleashing his wrath, but the principle is the same. There will be consequences for sowing to our flesh. The consequences will come at different times. And the consequences will come in different ways for different sins. 
But we can't be de deceive ourselves into thinking that because immediately following our sinfulness, there's a false hope of peace and safety. Because it's really just that there's typically time that passes between sowing and reaping, but there will eventually be a harvest. But listen, I, I want to give you the good news on that one too. It's at the end of verse 8 of Galatians 6, right after the passage we were just seeing. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. You'll reap life on top of life that just keeps giving life. We tend to view reaping and sowing, and we always tend to view it from this negative angle. But, but that wasn't God's intention because he gives us the positive side too. So reaping what we sow, it could be the worst thing in the world. But it could also be the best thing in the world. It depends on what we're sowing. We're going to eat of the fruit of our own harvest, whatever that is. Galatians 6, 8 says, if you, if you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. And then the, the next verse in Galatians goes on to say in verse 9, it says, and, and let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Listen, if you're doing all the right things, man, I hope that you are, but if you're doing all the right things and you're, you're sowing to the Spirit, you're loving your spouse, your mind is filled with, with pure thoughts, you're giving as God has entrusted you, you love your kids and you're trying to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you're faithful at church, you're sharing your faith, you're discipling and investing in others, you're walking in the Spirit, and you're sowing to the Spirit. God says, keep going. Don't get weary and well-doing, man, because just like the results or the fruit doesn't always come right after you've sown to the flesh, the blessing and life everlasting doesn't always come right after you've been sowing to the Spirit either. Don't get weary and well-doing because we will reap a wonderful harvest if we don't get weary and we keep pressing on. Will you keep pressing on with me this morning? Jesus, we're, we're, we're thankful, God, that you have provided us a way to have a relationship with you, to, to, be, to avoid the due penalty for our sins, God which we see laid out in your word that, that, some will have, that some will choose to suffer. God, may we not make that choice. It's such a, it is such an easy choice. God, you are a holy God. You demand a payment for the sin, God. We get to decide who pays for it. I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their trust and faith in you, that today would be the day that they call on your name to save them from their sins, Father. And for those of us that do know you. God, I pray this would be a day that we, we understand some of that principle that's laid out with reaping and sowing, God, that we would, that we would take a real look at our lives and, and say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not going to be here for the, for the tribulation when all of that craziness shakes out, but it doesn't change the fact that we also will reap what we sow here on this planet, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would just reevaluate our lives that we would just take a minute to take some inventory in our lives god and just see what we're sowing towards for sowing to the flesh god may we may we stop before it gets any further down the road 
And if we're so into the Spirit, Jesus, would you help us to keep pressing on and moving forward and not get discouraged if we don't see fruit right away, if we don't see life everlasting right away. I pray we just keep pressing on, Father. And we love you in your name. Amen. Have a stand. Have a sing as we consider the word of God.